The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. And uh, very excited to go through the book of Leviticus um, with you. So what is it about? Uh, There's so much that we could cover, uh, but as I was meditating on the dominant themes in the book of Leviticus, I zero in on the word holiness. I think the book is about holiness predominantly. Um, One of the speakers at the Nine Marks Expository preaching thing summed up Leviticus in this one sentence, we need more blood. Um, So I think there is definitely a blood theme in Leviticus. We'll get to that, but I think bigger than that, uh, is holiness, and I think I would even argue that it's blood toward the end of holiness, toward the goal of holiness. So even the blood itself is just a, you know, a means to an end. Um, so could somebody read um, these verses that I've given as a summation uh, here at the beginning? Leviticus eleven forty five, nineteen two, and twenty twenty six. So those are three very important statements, um, and I think that's why I believe this book is predominantly about the issue of holiness. Uh, holiness. Holiness may be God's most significant attribute in terms of communication to us in our sin. Um, in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, the calling of Isaiah as a prophet, the seraphim cover their faces with their wings and they cover their feet in clear displays of reverence in the presence of the enthroned and glorious Lord. And they continually call out to one another in voices that make the heavenly temple shake. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. No other attribute of God is so treated and stated in that same way three times. Um, Holy, holy, holy. Though I believe love ultimately is the central attribute concerning his nature within himself and toward his creation. Uh, Because of the reality of evil in the universe, Uh, We need to understand God's holiness before anything else. So uh, in the end, we're going to find God is a God of love, and when sin has been completely dealt with, uh, we will find uh, the love of God at the core of his being. But we also need to understand God's holiness, that God is holy and we're not. And we need to be in that way until our unholiness is addressed We cannot experience that love relationship with God. Now, what does holiness mean? I would contend that holiness is fundamentally about separation, about separation. God, first of all, is infinitely separate from all creation. He is high and lifted up far above all created realms. He is creator and everything else is creature. Those are the two categories of existence there is in the universe creator and creature, or created. Um, And he is infinitely above all of his creation. Furthermore, when sin entered the uh, universe, God especially established his infinite separation from evil. God is uniquely separate from evil. And in that sense, we are to be holy like he is holy. We cannot be holy in the other sense because we are not creator and other things created. We are ourselves creatures. 
Um, so we cannot be holy like that uh, when God says be holy because I am holy. But I think in that sense, he means be separate from evil. Uh, one of the best statements of this in the Bible is 1 John 1, 5, where God says, uh, where it says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no evil in God at all. He is infinitely separated from evil. He hates it with a perfect hatred. So this second separation, God from all evil, is vital for us sinners to understand. We are steeped in evil, but God is perfectly good. God cannot be close to evil. He is holy. We are not. So we must understand that if we are to be saved and spend eternity in close proximity to God, we need to understand God's separation from evil. And God set up elements of Israel's life to teach that lesson. He's holy and Israel's not. That God has to be separate from all evil. That's what his loving heart desires. Sin has to be addressed. The closeness to God, but sin has to be addressed. The people of God must be convicted of sin. They have to be educated in its defiling nature and in God's holiness, hence the book of Leviticus. Leviticus does that. It's an instruction on holiness and separation from evil. So the tabernacle... Uh, designed and constructed in the last chapters of Exodus, the thing that uh, Joel covered, you know, the last, I mean, from 25 to 40, basically the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood um, and the animal sacrificial system, the tabernacle, all of that set up, the instructions given and then fulfilled in Exodus 40. And you go right from that and then into Leviticus. So there's a strong connection between the tabernacle and the book of Leviticus. So that tabernacle represents God's presence in the midst of his people. The holy of holies or the most holy place, depending on translations, was a perfect cube. uh, Ten cubits uh, cubed or 15 feet. uh, Where the Ark of the Covenant was and the glory cloud hovered over the mercy seat, that represented to some degree, we could say, God's throne room in the midst of his people. God ruling over his people. Now the curtains all around represented barriers of access to our holy God. They were really a form of rebuke um, to the people of God, saying effectively, and I would argue this is one of the main lessons of the Old Covenant, this far you may come and no farther. First thing God ever said to Moses at the burning bush, do not come any closer. Uh, To me, that's very significant. The first thing that God says to Moses, do not come any closer. Imagine if Moses had said, or what? What do you think the answer might have been? I mean, I'll kill you. I mean, isn't that the implication? I will kill you if you come any closer. And that's definitely the message, the message to the nation of Israel. It's the message to to Aaron, the priest. We'll get to all that. But I mean, that's the implication. I mean, the wages of sin is death. You're not holy. You come into my presence, I will kill you. So do not come any closer. All right? So there's that, that picture. The curtains represent barriers to access to our holy God. So the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, Aaron was a Levite. And so we could say either the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood because a family, a clan within the tribe of Levi was chosen to be high priests, etc. The Levitical uh, priesthood was established in the book of Exodus for the worship uh, of the tabernacle, worship centered around the tabernacle. The sacrificial system was first established there, but uh, detailed carefully in Leviticus. It shows that a sinful people like us cannot come near to such a holy God without the ministry of the priest and, as the speaker implied, without blood. I mean, the blood had to be shed because the wages of sin is death. We'll get into all that. So our holy king established his throne room in the presence or the midst of a sinful and defiled people. 
Leviticus addressed the realities of that relationship. It's an intensely realistic and frankly, often ugly book. It covers some ugly themes. It's kind of why it's, I wouldn't say there's anybody here today because Leviticus is your favorite book in the Bible. If it is, you're an interesting person, all right? And I'd love to have that conversation. How is it of all the 66 books of the Bible, Leviticus became your favorite? But I don't think I'm talking to anybody like that. So it's, you know, it's got some repulsive themes in it. All right, it's a realistic and ugly book. It immerses us in the realities of sins, defilements, and pollutions. Addressing repulsive topics like running sores and creeping mold on walls, blemished animals, menstrual bleeding, baldness, and nasty skin diseases. Only by the priestly ministry of the Aaronic or the Levitical priest could this society function at all. So that's what we're going to deal with in the book of Leviticus. Central to the tabernacle worship was blood atonement offered by the Levitical priests. And Leviticus teaches us the lessons of the animal sacrificial system, which I've taught many, many times in other places. And I use all the time for evangelism. And I would commend it to you to memorize these three lessons of the sacrificial system. But no book teaches these lessons so clearly as Leviticus. And the three lessons of the animal sacrificial system are, number one, all sin deserves the death penalty. All sin deserves the death penalty. The lifeblood poured out on the ground, Leviticus 17, 11. The blood represents life. When life blood is poured out, that is death. So all sin deserves the death penalty. Lesson number two of the animal sacrificial system is the death penalty can be paid by a substitute. Essential to substitutionary atonement is in the eyes of God, the transfer of guilt to the substitute. If guilt cannot be transferred, we cannot be saved. If we are still guilty, on the day of judgment, we will be condemned to hell. So God can transfer guilt. If he can't, we cannot be saved. But the transfer of guilt is represented very powerfully in Leviticus 16 by the placing of the hands on the head of the animal and the confessing of the sins onto the substitute and the language is the transfer of the guilt to the substitute. The overt language of putting the sins on the head of the goat represents, I think, then instructs us what this gesture of priests putting hands on the head of the animal represents in all other cases. And so where in that case, the animal actually isn't killed, ironically, it becomes a scapegoat or picture of the separation of sin from the people. Still, that just gesture is described, we're instructed in Leviticus 16 on the transfer of guilt. Then, thirdly, the substitute cannot ultimately be an animal. This whole thing was symbolic. It didn't actually affect any forgiveness. Now, I got that third one, most especially from the book of Hebrews, where we're told very plainly the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Um, animals could never really atone for human sin. The whole thing was a teaching tool. It was symbolic. So also the tabernacle itself. Uh, we're told that as long as the earthly tabernacle is standing the way in to the presence of God had not yet been disclosed. So it's really more of a, a hindrance, an obstacle. Uh, it was not the final solution. Right? The tabernacle was just a teaching tool. So also the animals were just a teaching tool. Uh, animals are worth less than human beings. Um, they're lower than us on the scale of worth or significance so clearly. Uh, and therefore, we're waiting. The whole thing's waiting. Waiting for fulfillment. And so the, the question that Isaac asked to his father, here's, here's the fire and and here's the, everything is there, but where is the lamb? 
And so that is the question of the Old Covenant. Just like this far you may come and no farther, you could also say, where is the lamb is the question as well. If the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, then where is the one that can? And then when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he being infinitely higher than us in worth and value because of his status as the only begotten son of God, the incarnation, all that, by one substitute, by one sacrifice, he takes away the sins of all of God's people in all time. Uh, the book of Hebrews points very plainly at But these three lessons are very, very powerful, um, and they are predominantly taught here in the book of Leviticus. So we'll walk through all of that. All these point ultimately to the final and perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Jesus fulfills everything. He fulfills all the symbolism of Leviticus. It's actually delightful to go through and look at all of the aspects, the symbolism, the issues addressed, and see how all of them are resolved in Christ. And, they, and this book of Leviticus beautifully points again and again to Jesus, our great high priest, completely atoning for our sins by his shed blood, perfectly healing our bodies by his resurrection from the dead. There will be no running sores in heaven. Okay, there will be no creeping mildew on the walls. All right, wouldn't that be distressing? You know, in my father's house are many rooms and we need occasionally to kind of refurbish those rooms. Uh, that just isn't going to happen. Uh, we're going toward a perfect world. The issues that have to be addressed, you know, in Leviticus, you don't, we're not going to have to address them. And why? Because of the perfect work of Christ. Points to a perfect world. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, pain, no mole in the walls, no blemishes, nothing. And we will uh, look at that, especially no sin will be made perfect forever. God enthroned in our midst, we perfectly radiant, holy, drawn, intimately close to him. All right, so I wrote all that. That's my intro to the book of Leviticus. That's my... 30,000 foot overview. Let me just stop before we get to an outline that I got from my uh, study Bible. Leaned heavily on my study Bible here uh, for this study. Any questions or comments at this point? They are linked. Um, 90, I don't know, huge, huge percentage of Jesus' uh, miracles were healings. So we're going to get to that, but clearly there is the need for healing because of sin. And so all of the defects, the physical defects, entered the world through sin. And in the book of Leviticus, uniquely, physical defect pictures spiritual defilement. There's a strong link between physical pollution, physical defects, and the, the sin problem we have. The, the question that's in front of, why couldn't a hunchback serve as a priest, right? It's a, it's a valid question. What did he do wrong? But he can't. And so it's just an interesting thing. And so that physical defect pictures are, and I think the picturing, again, it's always a, it's instructional for us. It teaches us the big problem that sin is. We all of us underestimate sin, don't we? We all think it's not that big a deal. God clearly thinks it is. So that would be my answer um, to you. It's a good question. But I would say that was probably my biggest aha moment as I uh, worked on this is I'd never really seen so clearly how the physical problems addressed in Leviticus are picturing our sin problem, which they are, okay? I mean, I think we see that like with leprosy. Doesn't, doesn't a leper in full leprosy and full exclusion from the people, isn't it kind of obvious how that pictures us with God and our sin? I think it, it is. It, we're just ravaged by it. And it's not a hard metaphor to pick up that we have a kind of a spiritual leprosy. It's just covering all areas of our soul, that kind of thing. Well, I think Leviticus just openly kind of makes that connection. So all right, let's look at the outline of the book that I got from my NIV study Bible. I think this is very helpful. Um, so let's just walk through it. 
uh, Leviticus 1 through 7 walks us through the five sacrifices, five main offerings, the burnt offering in Leviticus 1, the grain offering in Leviticus 2, the fellowship offering in Leviticus 3, the sin offering, Leviticus 4, 1 through 5, 13, the guilt offering, Le Leviticus 5, 14, 6 through 7. Then there are additional regulations given for those offerings, carrying us up to the end of chapter 7. So that's Leviticus 1 through 7, the sacrificial system in a variety of ways. Most of them based on blood, but not all of them. There is a, a grain offering. So there's all of that, uh, et cetera. Then the priesthood, the installation and ministry of Aaron and his sons uh, is covered in Leviticus 8 through 10. Already kind of begun in Exodus, as you saw last week, but uh, it continues to develop in Leviticus 8 through 10. So you have the ordination of Levi and his sons, or sorry, Aaron and his sons, um, I should have said, uh, in Leviticus 8. Then the ministry of the priest described and unfolded in Leviticus 9. And then we have this shocking story of the death of Nadab and Abihu who offered um, un unauthorized fire uh, to the Lord and God struck them dead. So they become a, an overt historical picture of what God will do to anyone who comes in his presence, you know, unwelcomed or not, not invited or at all, really, um, apart from the work of Christ. We deserve that the fire would come out from God who is a consuming fire and consume us. And so they become a, a picture of what we all deserve, frankly. Um, so that's Nadab and Abihu. Then uh, Leviticus 11 through 15, we have a, a consistent pattern uh, on, taught, the distinction between clean and unclean. So this is a big theme in Leviticus. What is clean and what is not clean? The priest's job was to, to say what's clean and what's not clean. So you got foods, uh, clean and unclean food, Leviticus 11. Then you got the issue of purification of a mother after childbirth uh, covered in Leviticus 12. Then regulations for various skin diseases in Leviticus 13, 1 through 46. And then we got the mildew issue, as I mentioned, Leviticus 13, 47 through 59. Then you got the cleansing for skin diseases covered in Leviticus 14, 1 through 32. And then the cleansing from mildew. And how do you get a house, let's say, that's got mildew where people can live in it again or not? Maybe it needs to be destroyed. Um, so you just walk through that. And then you got issues of bodily discharges that cause uncleanness, Leviticus 15. So this is what I mean by, eh, there's lots of disgusting things that, that come across in this book, but they're just addressed. It's realistic, and Leviticus faces it head on. Then, in Leviticus 16, we have, you know, arguably the most important chapter in the, in the book, uh, the Day of Atonement and various issues connected with the Day of Atonement. It's a very important chapter, and we're going to read its words uh, later on. Then we've got just practical daily, holy living and daily life covered in Leviticus 16 through 26. Uh, eating of blood forgiven, uh, or for, sorry, forbidden. Um, and that's uh, where we get that verse in Leviticus 17, 11. You're not allowed to eat, eat the blood because it's, it's the life of the creature and it's given for atonement. It's given, that's the reason why God gave it, Leviticus 17, 11. Then we've got unlawful sexual relations. So be holy because I am holy definitely involves sexual life, sexual purity. Various laws for holy living are covered in Leviticus 19, punishments for sin in chapter 20. Then you got regulations for priests in 21, uh, 1 through 22, 16. And then acceptable and unacceptable sacrifices, Leviticus 22, 17 through 33. Uh, just parenthetically on that, just God tells you what to bring. He tells you how to worship him, you know. Uh, you don't just make it up. It's not a self-made religion. That really is arguably what happened with Cain and Abel, right? God told them what to do. And Cain just decided to make up his own religion. And God was displeased with what Cain offered, but he was pleased with the, uh, 
the animal sacrifice that Abel offered. And the clear implication, because when God rebuked Cain, he said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It implies he did wrong in bringing these vegetables and the different things that Cain decided to bring. So that's really significant here also. You can't just make up what you're going to bring to God. He'll tell you what to bring. Um, so that's that. And then we got the annual feast, which... Um, you know, the feasts are, are really beautiful. They're instructive, but they also show that God's ultimate desire is love, a love relationship. His ultimate desire is intimacy and wants to eat with us. He wants to sit at table and feast with us. And, you know, once sin is dealt with, that's what he ultimately wants. So the thing that's so beautiful for me as a Christian is to realize all of this evil and ugliness and sin, all of it's temporary. It's significant, but temporary. And it's going to be completely dealt with by Jesus. And when it's dealt with, then we'll get to the good stuff. And the good stuff is the first and second great commandments, ultimately. We're going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to love each other forever in a beautiful world that's not defiled by sin. I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, we have to face square on the problem that came into the world with Adam and, and all of our choices that we make. We have to address it, and that's Leviticus faces that. So the feast picture, that intimacy with God, that relationship with God. Then rules for oil and bread in the tabernacle laid out in Leviticus 24, 1 through 9. Those are symbols of various things. Uh, punishment for blasphemy, Leviticus 24, 10 through 23. And then the Sabbath um, and Jubilee years, both of them picturing the freedom that Christ gives us. The Jubilee, the uh, debts all canceled, slaves set free, people returning to their ancestral properties. Um, it's a picture of salvation that Christ works for us, the Jubilee year. And then covenant blessings and curses. And then finally, regulations for offerings vowed to the Lord. So that's just a good overview of the whole book. You can see how impossible it would be for us to go through all those details in an hour. Um, but instead, we have to zero in on some, on some um, aspects. So now let's go to the thing I mentioned a moment ago, which is physical imperfections picturing spiritual defilement. In Leviticus, spiritual holiness is pictured by physical perfection. Um, only animals with no blemish could be accepted as sacrifices. Someone read this for me, Leviticus 22, 21, 23. So there it is. I mean, you got all that clear, detailed description of what not to bring, and it's kind of ugly, you know, festering, running sores and all that. Um, in Malachi, I think it is, God directly rebukes Israel for bringing low-grade animals to him. He, he's very angry at it. And he's like, he says, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? He'll be able to pick it out. By the way, I have a discerning eye on animals, and you're bringing me your worst stuff. So here's the thing. There's two lessons being taught. First, it's just bring me your best. Love is measured by sacrifice, isn't it? The more you love someone, the more you're willing to sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So you measure love by what you're willing to give. And if you give something valuable to yourself, it means you love, right? If the gift is costly, it's a measure of love. That's a direct link. Um, and so there's that at least. But also this issue. The animals offered without blemish or defect are a picture of Christ's moral perfection, are they not? We, we know that. The, the reason that the animal had to be without defect is the ultimate fulfillment, as we're taught openly in 1 Peter, is Christ was without sin. He committed no sin. There's no deceit in his mouth. He was a pure being with no sin. So the physical defect of the animal uh, or the absence, the, having no blemish, no physical defect, it's a perfect, physically perfect lamb. There's no problem with it. Pictures Christ's moral perfection. 
whereby he is able to offer himself as a substitute for our sins. So that link between physical imperfection and sin, conversely, physical perfection and holiness is made in the book of Leviticus. You may think, well, that's, you know, I don't know, body shaming or something like that. It's like, what's going on with that? But this is something God did. And I think, again, it's meant to be a teaching tool. It's also reality, isn't it? God didn't create legs to be lame. He didn't create eyes to be blind. He created us to have functioning limbs and members and capabilities. So why then are there blemishes? Why are there running sores? Why, is the, why are there hunchbacks? And, and why is there leprosy? Well, it's because of sin. So it's, it's actually, a, it does make sense the more you think about it, but you've got that. Uh, again, I mentioned this, only men with no physical deformity may serve as priests. Leviticus 21, it says, no man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or who is hunchback or dwarf or who has any eye defect or has uh, festering running sores or damaged testicles. No uh, descendant of Aaron, the priest, who has any defect is to come near to present the offerings made to the Lord by fire. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. It's, you read that and it's like God's ways are not our ways. And you could say, why? What's, what did the hunchback do? He's got a hard enough life. And add on top of that, though he's in the right family, right? He could because of his genealogy, sir, but because of his body problem, he can't. But again, I think it's because this is a teaching tool. This is picturing our, our spiritual Im imperfection before God. So sores, burns, and baldness, uh, Leviticus 13, 14. A man's bodily discharge, Leviticus 15. A woman's monthly period in Leviticus 15 also are all singled out as cause for what's called uncleanness, spiritual uncleanness. So again, that physical uncleanness then pictures a spiritual issue, spiritual problem. All right. Persons with visible skin diseases must be banished from the camp as unclean. They can return to the camp only once their diseases have been healed and they've been inspected by the priest. So also houses, as I mentioned, with mildew must be ultimately destroyed if, if, they, if the problem can't be solved. And so there's a certain clocking out of days and looking and seeing if the thing's been dealt with. And uh, if not, it has to, be, has to be destroyed from among the nation of Israel. Uh, through these things, though these sorry, though these things may seem harsh, they teach important spiritual lessons. Now, the word unclean appears 124 times in the book of Leviticus, so it's clearly a big theme. All right, it's a big deal. Uh, Leviticus 10: You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Defiling things are taken outside the camp. That's 19 times in the book of Leviticus. It has to be gotten out of there. So there's no proximity. You've got to get all these defiling things away from you physically. Now, physical hygiene, as I said, is only partially the concern. You know, we could argue that these seemingly harsh regulations were ultimately only physical concerns, like a, a center for disease control kind of thing, like a <laughs> pandemic. And you could argue that, and I think there is that aspect of it, but I think it's ultimately spiritual. I think it must be, because you could make the same argument concerning clean and unclean foods, that it had to do with health, right? The unclean foods were not as good for you. Well, that argument doesn't work when Jesus declares all foods clean. Does he no longer care about health? Good nutrition? Clearly, that's not the issue. There is a spiritual aspect to clean and unclean food. Go ahead, Anne. 
How would you harmonize that then with like what Jesus teaches in John 9 about like the man born blind? How would you harmonize this teaching about point to a spiritual reality and then Jesus? Yeah, because they're thinking that it was specific, unique sin to this man or his parents in the in the um, the friends of Job sense. I'm arguing bigger picture. Because of sin in the world, all these things are happening. And I said it, you know, when I taught on those things, that it, it is linked to sin. Therefore, it will not be part of our world in the new heaven, new earth. But neither this man nor sin, nor his parents sin the way you mean. He's not claiming that neither this man nor his parents sinned at all. Neither is Jesus saying that no disease could ever be linked to personal sin. That wouldn't be true either. In this particular case, this man was singled out among all the blind men that have ever lived to be recorded in John 9 and be talked about 2,000 years later. He was chosen for a unique role so that the Son of God might be glorified through him. Pretty awesome. That's a great question. All right, um, so I believe God was using these physical deformities as an outward and visible symbol of our spiritual defilement in his sight. Do you not see how beautiful it is then when that woman with the bleeding problem has been, been spiritually unclean for 12 years, touches the hem of Jesus' garment and the bleeding immediately stops and she is now acceptable, no longer unclean. Um, and what a beautiful picture of salvation that is. Um, we'll get to all that. I just can't help. I can't keep doing this without talking about Jesus. You know, at some point I'm going to say, let's talk about the Lord because this is pretty dreary. I mean, I read through this, uh, you know, on Tuesday as I was preparing this. It's like, eh. Kind of a dreary book, you know? There's lots of, lots of hard, ugly stuff. Oh, here it is. Jesus' healing uh, picture. Isn't that funny how the thoughts I have right now I had earlier? There it is. All right. All Jesus' healings were physical manifestations of spiritual healing. All right? So uh, Jesus said, and I quote, I've quote this time and time and time again, uh, Luke 5, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the typical kind of Hebrew Part A, Part B, compare the two statements. That's just that Hebrew parallelism that's part of their poetry. Um, blessed is, are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. They do that a lot, this, this restatement. Uh, sometimes in exactly the same words, sometimes in different words. Um, but it's just a very, very beautiful thing. But Jesus is saying, um, you all know if you're healthy, you don't get to see a doctor, why would you do that? All right? But then he links it clearly to our sin problem. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, you were just talking about physical health, right? There's a direct link in Jesus' mind. So to some degree, all of our, our salvation is therapeutic. We're being healed. And I love seeing it that way. What is the first and greatest commandment? Is it not to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. So what is that? What is your heart? How would you define that biblically? What is your heart in that sense, in the first greatest commandment? What is the heart? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. What is it? Okay, what you long for. What does the heart do, according to the Bible? What are its functions? Does it think? Are there Bible verses that say, as you think in your heart, that's what you are? Yeah, apparently it thinks. Does it have emotions? Does it make choices? Does it do all of those functions for you? Yeah, that's it's like the center of your being, all right? You're supposed to love God with every aspect of that, the way you think, the way you love and hate, 
the way you choose or reject. You're supposed to love God with all that. Do you? No, you don't. Why? Because your heart's broken. And not like that, I'm so sad I have a broken heart. It's not that, it's defective, it's diseased. So does Jesus have the ability to heal the human heart so it does what it was supposed to do? Yeah, he does. And that's actually what he is doing. It's a work of healing. And I think it's beautiful. Then, thank you, Anne, for mentioning this. Would you? No, you're good. Would you read this for us? Uh, John 9, 39 through 41. So Jesus clearly is identifying something as spiritual blindness, right? And he does, he uses the healing of the blind man as a picture of a spiritual healing. There's no doubt at all. And, And from this, I have permission, I believe, to see all of his healings, all of them as a picture of spiritual healing too. Not in any way denying the historicity or the physicality of the healings. You know, the paralyzed man, when when Jesus heals him and he gets up and picks up his mat and walks out, isn't it true that our daily life is pictured as our walk, that we're to walk in a certain way? There's a walking that the Bible uses as a metaphor for your daily life. And so... You're now going to walk in righteousness along righteous paths, that kind of thing. So his physical healing is a picture of a new life. So I believe this is true in, in all respects. Uh, they also point to a future world, we'll just state of the physical, where there be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. There won't be any disease. There won't be any running sores. There won't be any paralysis. There won't be any blindness, no hunchbacks. Yes, there will be people who were hunchbacked in life, but they won't, won't be hunchbacked in the new heaven, new earth. There will be people that, you know, we're blind in life, but they won't be blind in heaven. So that's a beautiful thing, all right? Now, faith in Christ is pictured as cleansing from defilement. It's actually spoken of as a cleansing when you come to faith in Christ, all right? So when Jesus declared all foods clean, I preached a whole sermon this, Jesus said, don't you, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So there's the heart, and it's pumping out the sewage. Pumping it out. All sins start with the heart. And Jesus said, that's what makes you unclean. All right? Now, this is interesting. In Acts 10, 11 through 15, Peter saw heaven open and saw something like a large sheep being let down by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles. <laughs> Stop right there. How would you like to eat a reptile? Get up, Peter, kill and eat. It's like, oh man, it's nasty. A Gila monster, you know? Nothing like roast Gila monster. At any rate, there it is. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> Never, Lord, he said. That was the fourth and final time that Peter said no to the Lord, all right? Peter's a, he's a work of, uh, he's an interesting guy. Anyway, um, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure and clean. Now, here's this important statement. Do not call, God said to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, this is a living visionary parable preparing him to preach the gospel to a Gentile, Cornelius and his family, and literally to go in the man's house Jews didn't do that because they'd become unclean, right? God prepared him so that he would do that. And so he says to Cornelius and his family, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. 
Then uh, later at the Jerusalem Council talking about circumcision, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them uh, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. Now look at this statement. For he purified their hearts by faith. You see how important that statement is in light of the book of Leviticus? He, is, he cleans us by our faith. We are made clean by faith. It's a beautiful statement. You know, it's similar also to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and what? Purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's that cleansing that goes on. All right? Now, the future world will be free from all deformities, the resurrection of the dead, um, the body that's sown is perishable, raised imperishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. You don't see any hunchbackism in there, no blindness in there, no paralysis, no, none. And I'm going to quote this again in my sermon because the sermon's on resurrection, so we get to talk about it. And it's just a beautiful statement. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. All right, now from my NIV study Bible, we have these, uh, this chart of the various offerings, burn offering, grain offering, fellowship offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. Each of them had certain regulations uh, and purposes. They all had an intention. Let me just read the purpose. Um, the burn offering was a voluntary act of worship, atonement for unintentional sin in general, expression of devotion, commitment, complete surrender to God. That was the burn offering. The grain offering was a voluntary act of worship, recognition of God's goodness uh, and provision, devotion to God. Fellowship offering was a voluntary act of worship. Thanksgiving and fellowship included a communal meal. So the worshiper actually ate some of it with the priest. So it's a picture of fellowship, a picture of eating together with God. Um, and then sin offerings, a mandatory atonement for specific unintentional sin, confession of sin, forgiveness of sin, cleansing from defilement. And then the guilt offering, mandatory atonement for unintentional sin requiring restitution, cleansing from defilement, uh, make restitution, pay a 20% fine. So these are, this, these are the sacrifices, the five patterns of sacrifice laid out. Um, and then there's uh, regulations given. When more than one kind of offering was presented, as in number seven, the procedure was usually as follows. First, the sin offering or guilt offering. Second, the burn offering. Third, the fellowship offering and grain offering, along with the drink offering. This sequence furnishes part of the spiritual significance of the sacrificial system. First, sin had to be dealt with. Sin or, uh, offering or guilt offering. Second, the worshiper committed themselves completely to God, burnt offering and grain offering. Third, fellowship or communion between the Lord, the priest, and the worshiper was established. As stated another way, there were sacrifices of expiation, sin offerings and guilt offerings, consecration, burnt offerings and grain offerings, and communion. Fellowship offerings, including vow offerings, thank offerings, and free will offerings. So the animal sacrificial system brings us to the cross, all right? But it also talks about the Christian life after the cross. There is a pattern of sacrifice that should be part of our daily lives. We should be offering to God our bodies as living sacrifices. And then our money as a fragrant offering. Sometimes Paul talks about money as a fragrant offering. Um, our daily service, our good works, our prayers are, are pictured in the book of Revelation as, as incense rising up. Um, there, there are ongoing sacrifices that we give in our service to, to God and to Christ, things that are costly to us. And we'll be rewarded in heaven based on sacrifice, based on how hard something was for us. So I, I think about that. It's important. Like if you, for example, have a hard time sharing your faith, 
and you share your faith, God knows how hard that was for you. And he records it as, as uh, a sacrifice. If you've done it literally more times than you can count, it's of less value to you in terms of reward. It's still good work and it needs to be done, but he just measures based on sacrifice, based on what, you remember the widow with her two copper coins, right? And uh, it's all what it meant to her, not the absolute value like in the economy, but it was sacrificial for her to give that. And so God sees that. So the idea of sacrifice is vital to our ongoing life. It's like every day, and I, I think about these regular morning offerings that they're supposed to give. We should begin our day with sacrifice. Begin your day with a thank offering, all right? Work at it. Don't say, thank you, God, for everything you've given me. In Jesus' name, amen. That cost you very little. <laughs> but if you would kind of dive in there and spend time and just go through the spiritual sacrifices, every blessing in the heavenly realms that are yours, full forgiveness of sins, adoption of the family of God, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Bible translated and ready for you to read right there in front of you, a copy of it, your own copy. They didn't have that back then, but you do. Um, your brothers and sisters in Christ, good church, people that love you, pray for you, care for you, just go through it and work at it. And the more you work at it, the more sacrifice it is, the more valuable it is to God. And it's refreshing to you. Because it is delightful, isn't it, to be around thankful people? Conversely, <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say it, but it's pretty obvious. Do you want to be around thankless people, people who are grumbling and complaining about everything? I wouldn't. I play both those roles, sadly, from time to time in my life. But I want to be a thankful person, so we've got these pictures. Now let's talk about exclusion from the holy presence of God, which is pictured. First of all, we have the story of Nadab and Abihu. I'm not going to read it, but you know the story. They went in and they offered unauthorized fire. They broke the rules. There is indication because later in that chapter, there's a restriction against priests drinking fermented drinks before they go into the presence of the Lord. So it could be that they were drunk, possible. Imagine being drunk and just stumbling into the Holy of Holies and doing what you want to do. God's not putting up with that. And he instructs the entire human race in a timeless fashion by writing down what they did so we can all read it. And as I look at what happened in Adab and Abihu, and I realize I deserve it too, and you think what Jesus did for us, and the fact that we're not consumed because of God's goodness, because he consumed Jesus, basically, he poured out his wrath on him instead. Beautiful. But then the, um, um, you know, the statement he says, when fire came out, he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. All right, that's a very clear statement. I'm not going to be trivialized. You're going to deal seriously with me. You're going to understand who I am when you come into my presence. Okay? So I'm going to read Leviticus 16, 1 and 2. This is a very, very important statement here. Do you realize the significance of that statement? This is Aaron, the high priest. No one else is ever, ever allowed to come into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. Aaron is once a year. Look what he says. Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses. Wow. What will happen? Well, you don't have to wonder, he says. What will happen if he does? He will die. God will kill him like he did Nadab and Abihu. Do you realize now the significance of the curtain in the temple torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died and the statement, clear statement in the book of Hebrews, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Think about that, the incredible privilege we have 
to come whenever we choose into the presence of the Lord. It's incredible that God has done that. And the price tag was the blood of Jesus. So this is a very, very clear statement. So let's keep going uh, and look at Leviticus 16. We don't have much more time, but this is just a very important chapter. Um, I'll pick up at verse 3. So, or he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, he is to put uh, on the sacred linen tunic, the linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and for his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a burnt offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it out into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony, so he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sin has been. So the place itself had to be atoned for because it was human made right? We make it, it's dirty. That's God's lesson. And everything had to be cleansed with blood. He is to do the same with, uh, for the tent of meeting, which is am among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself and his household and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out uh, to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood, the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Now here's the key, verse 21-22. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Now, just grammatically, what is being put on the goat's head? Not the hands. The sins are put on the head of the goat. That is the transfer of guilt. There's lots of debate all the time about atonement and about all this propitiation and all that. I'm telling you, the transfer of guilt from us to the substitute is the, is the essential issue of our salvation. That our sins are put on Jesus and he dies, his righteousness given to us and we live. That's Salvation, that's the core of our faith. And this verse right here pictures it with the hands put and the sins confessed and put onto the live goat. He shall send the goat away into the desert 
in the care of a man appointed for the task, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. We'll stop there. The idea is a separation as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed our transgressions from us. That's the picture of the scapegoat. But I'm saying the hands on the head is a gesture repeated many, many times in other places. Often the priest would do it and the animal would die. This explains what that gesture means. And that's that transfer of guilt. All right, the lessons uh, that I've given you, all sin deserves a death penalty. It's fully walked through in the handout. I realize we only have five minutes left. Um, but if you look at it, this is the centerpiece of the animal sacrifice system and it explains it there. So I'll just read, read through it. By the way, what I did not realize was in Leviticus 1, 2 through 5, talks about any Israelite wants to make an offering to the Lord. He brings it to the to the uh, the outside, to the gate of the tent, and the priest comes out and meets him. He's not supposed to go in. And that animal is inspected and then accepted for the worshiper. The worshiper kills it. I didn't realize that. I always thought the priest killed it. Priests killed a lot of animals, all right? But the worshiper kills this one. I mean, the worshiper kills this one. So if that doesn't teach you all sin deserves a death penalty, that's, it's, you're the one killing it. You deserve to die for your sins and you're slaughtering this animal and then it goes on from there. It's very, very, um, you know, after he had put his own hands on the head of his animal. So there's a transfer of guilt from him to the animal and the animal dies. I mean, if I didn't tell you, you deserve to die, I don't know what, what does. I mean, there's this bloody big animal on the ground in front of you. All right, and then it's, he even is supposed to cut it into pieces. I remember a friend of mine is a hunter and he invited me over uh, to his home to process a deer. I didn't know what the word process meant. <laughs> I'm from Eastern Massachusetts. We didn't, we weren't, it wasn't a hunting culture there. I remember that. So I watched this individual process a deer. I mean, it's, this, is, this is a picture of violence, isn't it? It's a picture of, of blood and guts and animals being torn apart and all that. And, and that's Jesus in our place. Um, that's Jesus suffering and dying in our place. And then the third lesson of the animal sacrificial system, all sin deserves a death penalty. Death penalty can be paid by a substitute through the transfer of guilt, but the substitute cannot ultimately be an animal. So the author of Hebrews makes this very plain in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. And the constant repetition, the repetition, author of Hebrews tells us that's how you know it wasn't effective. Year after year, they did these same things. And so the endless repetition taught a lesson saying this is not, uh, this is not effective. Um, all right, let me look and see what I want to talk about with our three minutes left. Um, I've mentioned the joy of salvation picture, the annual feast, three times a year. The feasts are listed there. I knew this was going to happen, Andy. I, I got, I, it took me like two-thirds of my study day to do this handout. I said, I know we're not going to get through all this. So I would advise that you take it home and read these details. Um, I love the year of Jubilee. I don't know that they ever did it. I don't have any indication they actually did this. But it's a great idea, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like, like the Feast of Booths, and you find out in Nehemiah they'd never done it from the days of Joshua. And you're like, oh, wow, they missed that one. <laughs> God told them to do it, and they didn't do it. But the idea is you got seven sevens of years, and on the, on the year after, the 50th year, so this would happen effectively once in your life, unless you live really old. It might happen twice. But... Um, you know, you wouldn't have remembered you would have been so young or you lived to a really old age. But, you know, pretty much once in your life, there's this idea of debts all canceled. All of the tribes return to their ancestral property, which was given them by lot. Um, slaves were set free. It was just a beautiful picture of what Jesus, um, what Jesus did. Same thing with the cycle of feasts listed in Leviticus 23. Now, 
let me let me say one thing about Christ's healing. This is so good. I, I really actually was moved to tears when I considered it. Go to the last page, Christ as the fulfillment. All right, could someone read Mark 1, 40 to 42? This is so, so powerful. Now you're like, well, Jesus didn't follow the rules of Leviticus. Well, he was there to solve the problem. Leviticus manages the problem, right? Jesus is there to solve it, save from it. And if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now let's, let's get down to the molecular level. Hand of Jesus touching this destroyed flesh, right? Nasty running sores and the hideous flesh. At the moment of touching, you can say, well, didn't Jesus become unclean? No. The man became clean. So picture two rooms side by side, one completely dark, the other one awash in light. And think of a gate swinging open between the two. Which wins, light or darkness? Think about that. The, the, the darkness flees. The disease flees before Jesus. Healing rushes in, dominates. Just like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. It's not like he eked out a one-point win. No, death is swallowed up in victory. And so Jesus heals this man at the cellular level. Such a beautiful picture of Jesus' triumph over sin and disease and all that. And yet, he tells the guy, go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifice. So I'm not ready to fulfill all of those aspects yet. It's going to come. The curtain in the temple will be torn in two from top, but it hasn't happened yet. So let's follow the rules. But the man's healed. No doubt about it. The reason he goes show himself is to show he's healed and to give glory to God. Same thing with the woman with the bleeding problem. So beautiful. So just look at the very end here. Christ's healing show his absolute power over defilement. Christ is God dwelling in our midst. He tabernacled in our midst. Christ is that tabernacle. Therefore, he is the temple. He is the final blood sacrifice finishing that system. He is the perfect high priest. He is the way into the presence with the curtain torn. He is our holiness. As 1 Corinthians says, he is our sanctification from God. He is our cleansing from defilement. He is the Sabbath rest. He is the fulfillment of all of the feasts. You look at all the feasts, they're fulfilled in Christ. He is the oil. He is the bread. He is the year of Jubilee. He's all these things. God is a teacher. And the lessons are pointing to Christ. The spirit of prophecy is the spirit of Christ. And it testifies to Jesus beautifully. And so Jesus, in great understatement, said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Power. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.